Even though many people seem to complain that America must finally have a conversation about race, a national reckoning, if you will, doesn't it seem that we're almost always engaged in a conversation around race and racism? You know, whether it be studying outcomes in policing, education, medicine, housing, the environment, welfare, college admissions, or virtually any subject matter, in a matter of nanoseconds, we move from issues facing all Americans to results broken out by racially hyphenated Americans. And of course, if there are gaps between races, then the forces of racial bias or racial discrimination or white supremacy emerge as the sole all-purpose explanation for the cause of those disparities. And in this conversation about race, there is a closed universe of acceptable language that one must use. Otherwise, you will be labeled as a racist yourself. So when it comes to the subject of race, it is virtually impossible to, to avoid the trilogy of institutional racism, structural racism, systemic racism. The language suggests a kind of permanent American malignancy or as Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote in her lead essay of the New York Times 1619 Project, quote, anti-black racism runs in the very DNA of the country, end quote. How does one individual fight against such powerful and structural forces? Well, in the eyes of the purveyors of this ideology, you can't. Take the racial wealth gap where this message of futility in the face of a fortress of discrimination is constantly repeated. Nicole Hannah-Jones herself wrote an 8,000 word essay called What is Owed about the prospects of black people closing the racial wealth gap. She wrote, quote, none of the actions we are told that black people must take if they want to lift themselves out of poverty and gain financial stability not marrying, not getting educated, not saving more, not owning a home. None of those things can mitigate 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. Echoing this pointlessness of individual decision-making, a team at Duke University, uh, also writing about the racial wealth gap, also emphasized black people's powerlessness to improve their economic condition, end quote. There are no actions that black Americans can take unilaterally that will have much of an effect on reducing the wealth gap, end quote. You know, there's a great saying that if you tell a lie big enough and you keep repeating it over and over and over, people will eventually start to believe it. And that's the problem with our current conversation on race. So given this constant drumbeat in America's conversation about race that is dominated by what I call the big three, systemic racism, institutional racism, structural racism, today I want to, talk, to speak about the concept of individual agency and a new, equally important form of racism that is experienced every day by millions of stereotypically beleaguered people of color, black Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, who are supposed to be oppressed by the big three insurmountable forces of racism. 
So in addition to systemic, structural, and institutional, I call this new, equally important form of racism, surmountable racism. Surmountable racism is the lived experience of generations of successful African-American doctors, lawyers, engineers, carpenters, pilots, accountants, investment bankers, mayors, governors, the current vice president, the former president, and millions of people of color who have built strong families, succeeded economically, have strong faith commitments, and are leading lives of their own choosing. People who might say that they did in fact face the big three and yet did not fall prey to becoming victims of structural, institutional, or systemic racism. What makes those who experience surmountable racism different? What can be learned from their lives? For example, remember that litany that Nicole Hannah-Jones said, doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you get educated, none of those things matter. Well, it turns out in Nicole Hannah-Jones's life, she's done all four of those things and is leading quite a very prosperous life. And good for her. Perhaps my own lived experience can also provide some insight. For the last decade, I was CEO of a nonprofit network of public charter elementary and middle schools in the heart of the South Bronx in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Almost all of our students were black or Hispanic and almost all came from low-income backgrounds. Each year, we had nearly 5,000 kids on our wait list. And just a few weeks ago, I founded and CEO of Vertex Partnership Academies a new charter management organization of character-based international baccalaureate high schools dedicated to the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. The reason I run schools is I want my students to know that they can do hard things. And I've worked with kids from every imaginable, every imaginable background, rich, poor, intact family, completely unstable family, foster care, homeless, you name it. I've seen kids grow up in challenging institutions or challenging situations who succumb to the conditions in which they're in and unfortunately often recreate these in their own lives. But I've also seen kids succeed and ultimately thrive despite these conditions. The question is, what makes the difference? As a senior fellow at AEI, I study upward mobility, and I often say we need to be as obsessed with studying success as we seem to be obsessed with studying failure and poverty, especially when it comes to matters of race. As someone who has run public charter schools that primarily educate kids of color, I know how debilitating a narrative that exclusively focuses on structural barriers, what I call a blame the system narrative, how destructive that can be for a student's hopes and aspirations. Rather than helping young people develop an understanding of the behaviors most likely to propel them into success, the message will only teach what psychologists call learned helplessness. Simultaneously, though, I'm also leery of a blame the victim ideology that penalizes kids for not succeeding against the odds. It's really hard to pull oneself up by your own bootstraps if, you haven't, if you've been born into an unstable family 
or if you're not surrounded by a strong faith community, or if you, or if you have not benefited from high quality educational education through school choice. In the district in which we just opened our high school, only 7% of the kids that started ninth grade in 2015, four years later, graduated from high school ready for college, meaning that 93% either dropped out of high school or they did earn their high school diploma but still could not do math nor reading without remediation if they were to go to college. And in this district, there's a cap on charter schools. So even if you had a great idea, you couldn't go forward. That is a structural barrier, a real one that a seven-year-old cannot solve. So it's very hard to blame the victim when you do have those kinds of barriers. In my experience, young people who ultimately enjoy thriving lives entered young adulthood having developed a sense of personal agency. In my book, I provide an empowering alternative that in my view counters the debilitating blame the victim and blame the system meta-narratives. I define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So think of agency as a vector or velocity, where velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction. So if every young person of any race has free will, the question is, how do they learn to exercise their free will? In which direction should it be wielded? Where does the ability to become a morally discerning person come from? My answer is that no one is entirely helpless, and, and also, though, no one can truly make it on their own. Agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. Students who develop a sense of agency have usually embraced and been supported by the four pillars of what I call free, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. The four local institutions that, in my view, drive human flourishing. Family is helping young people understand the importance of forming strong families. It's not about the family that you're from, it's about the family that you form, which is why it's so important to teach young people about this concept called the success sequence. And many of you may know this data that says if you just finished your high school degree, get a full-time job of any kind just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And if you have children, if you got married first, 97% of millennials who follow that uh, series of decisions avoid poverty, and the vast majority enter the middle class or beyond. R is for religion, the power of a personal faith commitment, dramatically different outcomes in terms of levels of loneliness, depression relative to kids who do not have a personal faith commitment. E is for education, ensuring that every parent has the right to choose a great education that meets their child's needs. School choice is fundamental. E is for entrepreneurship. If you have built a strong foundation uh, for your family, strong faith commitment, strong education, that usually creates uh, a grounding where you can become more of an informed risk taker, someone who has an entrepreneurial mindset, even in traditional work. I go into each of these concepts more so in my book, Agency. I mean, ultimately, there's no silver bullet intervention that will magically close gaps in racial outcomes, especially when those gaps have causal factors that begin very early in life. 
But if we know that there are factors beyond race, such as education, family stability, the importance of faith, and so many others that can make a difference in the lives of kids, then our approach to upward mobility should be to promote empowering messages of hope and agency versus grievance and dependency. We all have a commitment to fight racism where we see it, but we also have a commitment to communicate to young people of all races that their life can be their own, that there are pathways to prosperity and power even in the face of life's inevitable obstacles. That is what I call agency. Thank you.